Today's scripture reading is from Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 25. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm delighted to be worshiping with you this morning. If you're new to Liberty Fairmount, we're glad that you're here. Take time and look at the blue pamphlet that was passed out. There's some ways to get connected. And on the bulletin itself, it lists our home meetings where you can get plugged in and uh, develop some relationships and new friendships. Relationship is important to us, and so we're studying together on Sundays and then in our home meetings the same passages so that we can uh, reinforce the depth and work for a deeper relationship with God, with each other, and with our city, uh, Philadelphia. Now, this morning, we come to Romans 7. And there's been, there have been two times in my life where I've gone to a, a very famous chef, gone to a restaurant where there's a very famous chef, and I've been able to not order off the menu, but the chef just prepared throughout the evening. And one of those dinners took five hours. It was just as the kitchen was churning, the chef would send something out new, and we would taste, and it would be delightful. And then as the kitchen was churning, you know, over the next course of the several hours, just different dishes kept coming, and it was wonderful. If you've had food prepared with that kind of care and that kind of love, it's an amazing experience, but it takes time to eat. It takes time to eat. And one of the things that happens around the table is that as you taste the next bite and you taste the wonder that's there, you share the the enjoyment that you're having with one another and it facilitates conversation, not just around the food, but around life and around relationship and around each other. This, I wish we could have that kind of meal with this passage. I really wish that we could sit for the next five hours and taste morsel by morsel and relate to one another over it and uh, enjoy one another through it and, and gather hope with what we learn. But we can't. We have about 35 minutes and there's so much food here to eat. So I'm going to just throw morsels out to you. It's a terrible way to serve this kind of food. And I'm going to ask you to taste it if you catch it. And, and what I want to do is just pray now that the Lord would actually let us taste some of the richness of this food that we're about to read and study together. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we come simply before you acknowledging our dependence upon you. We, we are nothing in and of ourselves, and yet we were made everything in you. We were made heirs of the kingdom through the work of your son, Jesus. And so we seek you now. We ask to meet you here in this text. We ask that you would build and encourage our hearts. There are many of us who are discouraged, who are feeling under attack, who are struggling with the weight of sin and brokenness in our own lives. Lord, we ask that you would be a balm for our wounds, that you would heal us this morning, and that you would uh, encourage us and give us hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
so I have two children, and uh, one of our favorite things to do, as you know, is family movie night. And we recently watched the Steven Spielberg film Tintin. <coughs> it's a CGI version of uh, a, a very famous comic that often adolescent boys will read. And it was pretty well done. And one of the main thrusts of the of the storyline was that there was sunken treasure somewhere. And the only way to find the sunken treasure was that there were three separate pieces of paper, each with different coordinates on them. And only when you got those pieces of paper and you overlapped them together could you see the full location of where the treasure was hidden and you could go after it. In fact, the whole second movie is supposed to be based on the fact that they did gather that information and they're going to head out and find the sunken treasure. So we have more to anticipate. But I, I want to submit to you that you need to listen this morning for a similar kind of overlap. A similar kind of overlap as we listen to this passage. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give you some background information. And because of time, and because there's such richness, I'm going to be a little bit more rote about this. But I want you to listen for the overlap that we need to be able to see all of the treasure that's in this verse. Okay? In his commentary on Romans... Douglas, Dr. Douglas Moo alerts us to a long time and intense debate among commentators over this passage. A long and intense debate with three main interpretive directions having emerged. And I want to pause here and say many of you will find one or another of these interpretive have grown up in one of these interpretive directions with this passage. When you, you're going to find that we land on one and I'm going to preach through one of these directions because I'm convicted in that way, and I think there's good reason. But I want you to hear my deep respect for the other positions, and I think we need to interact with those other positions, and we need to be able to dialogue well together, particularly as we meet in our home meetings this week and discuss it. Some of you might have grown up in a tradition that is different from the one that we're espousing. That's okay. You know, the relationships are worth the mess. That's the name of this series, and, and you'll get a chance to find that out together. So... Dr. Mu alerts us to the debate among the commentators, and we're going to be taking the interpretive direction Dr. Mu describes in this way below. Having described how he, Paul, first came to know the law in 7, 7 through 12, past tense, he now shares with us his continuing struggle, present tense, even as a Christian, to fulfill the law of God. For while God has redeemed him from sin... He is still in the body, subject to temptation and the continuing struggle with his sinful nature. Thus, his obedience is not perfect, but he joyfully looks forward to the day when God will transform his body. In the meantime, he continues to find himself divided between service to the law of God and service to the law of sin. In other words, Paul reflects in this passage the already, not yet, tension of the Christian experience. The new regime has come and believers belong to it by faith. But the old regime still exists and exerts its influence on believers. Struggle with sin inevitably marks out life in this world. Now, there are a strong history of commentators and theologians and counselors and pastors who have taken this direction as well. Augustine and Calvin and Luther, Bob Inc., Lane and Tripp, who wrote our book, are among them. And I think the key to us taking this direction, this same direction together can be found in the concept of the already but not yet the tension that Dr. Mu wrote about. Simply put, now follow me here, simply put, in the gospel, there are things that are already true of us 
They're things that are already true of us, but not fully realized because we live in the overlap of the ages of redemptive history unfolding. Already true of us, but not fully realized because we live in the overlap of the ages of redemptive history unfolding. In other words, within the span of God's redemptive history, in the center, there's an area where both parts, both ages of that redemptive history overlap, and we're living in that area. We're living right in the overlap of them. Um, one, one simple example that I thought about is Ezra is my son. He's in the tween years. You know, he's not quite a teenager, but he has all of the explosion of teenage stuff going on inside him. And, and, but he's also still kind of a boy. You know, he has all of the loves of being a boy and being an eight-year-old. And he's 11 now, but both coexist in him. He has an overlap of the ages in his childhood development. And uh, if you've been around boys this age, you'll, you'll see it. You'll know it. There's a, there are moments when there are uh, intense moments of childishness that don't seem like they should fit with the other kinds of development going on. And you also see intense moments of development that don't quite fit with all the, all the childishness that you would expect. Both are true at the same time. So we're in that area, and we have aspects of both ages that are currently true for us in the same time. Okay? Luther describes some of the practical results of this overlap in his famous saying, simul justus et peccator. What he means by that is that we're at the same time righteous, yet justified. We're so, sorry, we're at the same time righteous and justified, yet a sinner. Okay? Simultaneously righteous, yet sinner. In the not yet, Christians struggle with sinfulness. We struggle as sinners. In the already, Christians are righteous and justified. There's an overlap of these ages. There's an overlap of these things in our life. In the not yet, we're unable to say that we are without sin. 1 John 1, 8 through 10, puts it this way. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. In the already, we're able to say that we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. Galatians 2.20 reads this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, by, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Both are true. Both are true. At the same time, because we live in the overlap of the ages of redemptive history. It's a lot like those sheets in Tintin that come together, and it's only when they come together, only when they overlap, that you can see the riches of the treasures of the Christian life. So another practical example (coughs) of the already but not yet can be found in in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're going to look at this more next time we get together in two weeks. Um, Paul describes how Christian change should go. What does change look in your life if you're a Christian? He describes what it should look like. In 4, 17 through 34, Paul argued that the Ephesian Christians should not continue to live the way people who did not know Christ lived. Why is he telling them that if they're not doing it? 
You see, so he's struggling with them. He's telling them that they, they, they cannot continue to live, should not continue to live the way people who did not know Christ live. Instead, they were to put off their old selves to be made new in the spirit of their minds and to put on their new selves made to be like God in righteousness and holiness. Now, we can see the already and the not yet of our existence, the overlap of the ages in this text. The already, since their identity was in Christ, they're able to put on their new selves, renewed in the spirit of their minds and made to be like God in righteousness and holiness. There are things that are already true of them. And yet they're not fully realized. There's a not yet. Their identity was also as those who are still sinners because they had been living like their old selves. In other words, like the Gentiles who had not heard or learned about the truth in Jesus. In the book that we're reading that accompanies our study of relationships, and the reason why we're looking at sin today is because we're looking at things that get in the way. You've got to expect that sin is going to get in the way in the best of your relationships and in the worst of your relationships. In the book we're reading as a companion study, Tim Lane and Paul Tripp put it this way. The Apostle Paul describes his biggest problem as an eternal one in Romans seven twenty-one through 25. The term law explains an inescapable principle at work in his life. That principle is like gravity. You can't choose to be free from its influence. Until you are finally delivered from the power or presence of sin, you will never escape your own sin in relationships. The term war illustrates the ever-present struggle going on with Paul. This inner conflict between a desire to do what is right and the power of sin is still at work. The term prisoner describes the experience of the redeemed sinner. Have you ever wanted to do the right thing but were pulled into sin? You said to yourself, I can't believe I did that again. This is what it feels like to be a prisoner. A prisoner has lost his freedom. The word rescue is a dramatic word that is often overlooked in these verses, though. In light of the previous three words, it should shine even more brightly. When you need rescue, it means that you are hopeless without outside help. Now, some of the words are a little bit different in our translation. For example, we have deliver instead of rescue, but it's the same point. We need outside help. They go on to write, Our mistake is to think of grace as deliverance from problems. In reality, it's the ability to persevere in the midst of those problems. We desire the grace of relief while God gives us true grace of empowerment. Even in the deepest difficulty, we're never without resources. Think of what God has given to help us navigate relationships in the fallen world. He's given his word, which is rich with wise principles. He's given us his spirit who convicts us when we're wrong, empowers us to seek forgiveness, and enables us to show compassion to those who have wronged us. He has given us community of fellow Christians where we can receive ongoing correction and encouragement. You know, when we had our leadership retreat in the fall, one of the key things that the leaders brought out, the leaders of this church brought out and said, we want to be a part of this year. One of the key things is that we need to be able to say and hear and receive from one another correction and pushback when we see sinful tendencies in one another. We need to be the kind of community of depth where we're able to say those things to one another. And so, I want to uh, move on from the background information that we covered. It's important. You can see that this is a complex argument. And I want to give you some encouragement (coughs) as we get uh, further into our text briefly and just cover some of the main things that are there. No matter which of the three, again, I'll say it again, friends, no matter which of the three interpretive possibilities, we didn't cover the other two, we don't have the time, 
But no matter which of the three you hold, if it's different from the one we're espousing here, uh, if it's different than you hold or different than the members of your home meeting hold, remember to discuss things in a way that reflects the grace of the gospel with one another as you meet in your home meetings this week. What I want you to do is proceed with this command to you from Paul from Ephesians 4 as you talk over the passage together this week. He says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Okay? So when you talk to one another, even in disagreement, make sure that you're abiding by Paul's instruction to us there. It's important. That's how we're going to be able to move into that territory of being able to speak the truth and love to one another and hear correction from one another well. Okay. So... Basically, all of this, in all of this, we're talking about the fact that our biggest problem with relationships is inside us, and we can't fix it on our own. Our biggest problem with relationships is inside us, and we can't fix it on our own. So what we're going to do is talk about several things. We're going to talk about, briefly, the inescapable principle of sin that's work in our relationship. Verse 21, 23, use the word law to describe uh, the principle of sin at work. We're going to look at sin as an ever-present struggle going on within us. Verse 23 actually calls it a war. We're going to look at the struggle going on within us as an experience of the redeemed sinner. Verse 23 uses the word captive. Prisoner in the lane and trip quote. And then we're going to look uh, that we're hopeless without outside help. Verse 24 uses the word deliver. Okay, so let's get in quickly to the details. And again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to stick closely so we can cover and taste all of the wonder of this meal as we study together. The first uh, point is that the inescapable principle of sin is at work in our relationships. Now, the term law explains an inexplicable, inescapable principle, sorry, inescapable principle at work in Paul's life. And we've already read this, that The principle is like gravity. You can't choose to be free from its influence. Until you're finally delivered from the power and presence of sin, you'll never escape that in your own relationships. James, in the book of James, his letter, he puts it this way. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Lane and Tripp further comment on this, writing, Your own experience in relationships helps you understand why the Bible includes so many commands and exhortations to be patient, to be kind, to be forgiving, to be gentle and humble. The Bible assumes that relationships this side of eternity, as we overlap in the ages of redemption, are going to be messy and require a lot of work. And if this is true of our best relationships, how much more true is it going to be of the ones that we struggle in? Okay, so there's a messiness. But two, we're going to look at the idea that sin is an ever-present struggle going on within us. The term war illustrates this struggle, the inner conflict between a desire to do what's right and the power of sin that's still at work. One of the most powerful descriptions I've heard is in a letter from John Newton. He wrote, um, there's a collection of letters. You can get them on Google Books, you know, the open domain books. You can find it there. Um, There's still some print versions. I have a couple. He had uh, Cardiphonia and Omicron and and these kinds of strange titles uh, for letters that he wrote. It's a collection of pastoral letters that he wrote to people. And he writes about this ongoing internal war that he experienced. So I'm going, to write, I'm going to read a portion of this letter to you so you can get a sense of what it's like. He writes, 
I think my last letter turned upon the apostle's thought in Galatians 5.17, you cannot do the things that you would. In the parallel place, Romans 7.19, there's another clause subjoined. The evil which I would not do, that I do. This added to the former would complete the dark side of my experience. Permit me to tell your lordship a little part. Remember, he's writing to various peoples that he was a pastor to. Permit me to tell your lordship a little part, for some things must not, cannot be told, not of what I have read, but what I have felt in illustration of this passage. He goes on to say this. I would not be the sport and prey of wild, vain, foolish, and worse imaginations. But this evil is present with me. My heart is like a highway, like a city without walls or gates. Nothing so false, so frivolous, so absurd, so impossible, or so horrid, but it can obtain access. And that at any time or in any place. Neither the study, nor the pulpit, nor even the Lord's table exempt me from their intrusion. I sometimes compare my words to the treble of an instrument which my thoughts accompany with a kind of bass, or rather anti-bass, in which every rule of harmony is broken. Every possible combination of discord and confusion is introduced, utterly inconsistent with and contradictory to the intended melody. Ah, what music would my praying and my preaching often make in the ears of the Lord of hosts if he listened to them as they are mine only? By men, the upper part only, if I may so speak, is heard, and small cause there is for self-congratulation, if they should happen to commend, when conscience tells me they should be struck with astonishment and abhorrence, could they hear the whole. The reality is, is that this is the experience, this war is the experience, and oftentimes we live our lives as though we're not we're completely unaware of it. We have people right here in this congregation who have fought in war. I can tell you the one thing you want to do when you're engaged in warfare is to be unaware of it. It happens for us. A couple of uh, Easter's ago, I'm not sure, a couple of Easter's ago now, my wife and I had received a, um, a YouTube video link of a project that a friend who's a very talented musician was working on. And basically what he was doing as an artist and a musician was bringing his film, he's done a lot of film scoring. One of the uh, things that he did was score, um, underscore with music, the, the idea of what Christ has done for us as he, he brings us victory in the gospel. And it was extraordinary and it was moving because he's very talented he's very artful and the gospel that was being spoken as the as the score undergird it was powerful and it made for a powerful image and so it rallied Anne Marie and I both and we happened to be separate but she was at uh, her dad's with the kids and I was uh, remained behind in the city where I was at and I was uh, had to do services there and we connected with each other by text and we said you know we should we should reinvent ourselves in the gospel based on what he did here. And I said, yeah, let's do it. And I was excited. And we texted and we said goodnight and it was late at night. And I started praying and I thought, Lord, 
how would Anne-Marie change if this were true for her? And I started with my wife rather than starting with myself. And he used that in a very instructive way in prayer because one of the things, you know, Anne-Marie grew up in the Catholic Church and, and some of you have too. And one of the things that you still struggle with is a sense of guilt and shame because that's a, a big motivator for doing the things that you do. It's not grace, but it's a sense of fear and a sense of judgment. And that's not true of all Catholic believers. But it is, it is generally something that people struggle with. And so Anne-Marie too. And I was praying, I said, Lord, it would be great to see my wife freed from accusation. And he brought to, verse that, he brought to mind that verse that says, when you go to pull the speck out of your brother or sister's eye, Make sure that you take care of the log in your own eye first. And I was surprised at that in prayer. And I thought, hmm, how do I struggle with accusation? Lord, show me. Oh, my word, it was so frightening. It was like there were floodlights that went on in the expanse of my mind. And I saw that I had been living under accusation. Every thought, every, um, everything that happens throughout the day was tainted with it. And I said, Lord, I don't want to be accused like this. And in prayer, he reassured me through his spirit that there is now no condemnation. There's no one can accuse because of the work that I've done for you. And so I began to start with myself to know freedom from accusation and know that the war was at hand. Have you ever been walking down the street and a thought comes into your head that is not the way that Jesus would talk to you? It's not the way the gospel is presented, and yet you entertain it as though it's real and has the power to shape you. The war is real. It's going on. The struggle going on within us is also the experience of the redeemed sinner, verse 23, captive. He says, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin and death that dwells in my members. The term captive describes the experience of the redeemed sinner. Have you ever wanted to do the right thing, but instead were pulled into sin? You said to yourself, I can't believe I did that again. That's what it feels like to be made captive. Paul argues the same kind of thing to the Galatian Christians. He writes there in chapter 4, verse 9, But now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? In the overlap of the already but not yet, you're acting as though there's another authority that God, than God that can shape our lives, that can shape you and who you are. And this happens deceptively. In verse 21 of our text, Paul writes that evil lies close at hand when he wants to do right. Have you ever seen, one of the things that we like to do sometimes is just watch beautiful footage of animals from around the world. And there's some great, um, great series that have been developed like that. And so, in one of these series, have you ever seen a tiger? A tiger's a big cat, the biggest Right? It's a big cat. Have you ever seen it lie down to get ready to pounce? It makes itself small, as small as it can. It lies down at hand, and it's ready to pounce. Evil makes itself small. It lies down to make itself small before it pounces on you. 
and it happens gradually. Think about the way that it happens gradually as you enter in to temptation. You know, there are stages to temptation entering into sinful, uh, sinfulness and expressing sinfulness. The first is entering in. Temptation comes along. It can be whatever, and we'll discuss some options in a minute. Temptation comes along, and it's a visual, so you have to look. It comes along, and it says, here I am. And temptation does this. Huh, no, I don't want any part of you. I'm, I want to be part of God's kingdom and, and bear forth the gospel and the fruit of the gospel. Entering into temptation was that subtle head shake and look and moment of consideration where it seemed attractive. You didn't go all the way through with it, but in your heart you're entertaining it, saying, you look good. It was momentary. It was fleeting. But you've got to beware. The war is on. You're already entering in. The next level down is arguing with instead of against. It's like there's a criminal outside your door. Your door's locked. They want to come in and harm you. And they're knocking. And they're trying to reason with you. Say, look, if I could only come in and sit down at your table with you, I can tell you why I need to do the things that I need to do. Will you listen? Entering in... Arguing with instead of against temptation is where you actually invite them in and sit down. You invite the sin in and sit down and say, all right, not only do I consider you beautiful, but you might have a point. Let me engage. Let me hear your reasoning. What are you doing? You're allowing other things to shape you other than the Lord's voice. The next level down is under accusation. Satan's name means in part the accuser. And the way that he works is to say something inside, again, a thought that is not like the gospel, not like the way Jesus would speak to you. The way that he works is after you enter in and you argue with instead of against and you're, you're fully involved with the sin, whatever it is, he'll say, and you call yourself a Christian. There's no hope for you. Look at you. You're miserable. And yet you need it more because when you take a bite of sin, when you taste it, when you enter into it, however that looks for you, it can't satisfy you the same way the next time. And so you need more of it. And then that can't satisfy you the same way the next time. You need more of it. And then there's spiraling down. And at this point, you're just caught in that cycle. You need more and more and more and more. And you need help. Honestly, you need intervention of some loving friends who can speak the truth in love with you and help you sort that kind of thing out. Now... We're going to look through uh, some of the practical examples. On, it's, there's a helpful chart in the book that we're studying. It's the com- companion book that we're studying. Um, and I, I commend it to you. For the moment, I'm speaking to those of you who would consider yourself a Christian. Okay? If you're in, in process or you've been in journey, listen in because you're going to see the dynamics of how sin works in everybody's life, Christian and non-Christian alike. <coughs> As a Christian, you may struggle with self-centeredness. Now, I want you to listen for yourself in these various descriptions, as I did when I read them. And I found myself there in more than one. So ask the Lord for the strength to face what's going on inside of you with, with courage and yet with humility. As a Christian, you may, with self-centeredness, uh, you may struggle with it. One of the telltale emotions or actions is that you're often anxious and needy. You want attention and approval, 
Sacrificing control and independence in relationships is an acceptable cost to you to get the attention and approval that you want. One of your biggest fears is rejection, not being recognized or affirmed. Because you struggle in this way, others can feel used or minimized or smothered. Or how about this? As a Christian, you may struggle with self-rule. One of the telltale emotions and actions is that you're often angry. You want to be right. You want to be in control. Sacrificing intimacy and unity in relationships is an acceptable cost to you to be right and get the control you want. One of your biggest fears is being seen as wrong, being dependent. Because you struggle in this way, others can feel coerced or manipulated. Here's another. As a Christian, you may struggle with self-sufficiency. One of the telltale emotions and actions is that you're often cold or distant. You want independence. You want time alone. Sacrificing intimacy and mutually helpful community is an acceptable cost to you in order to get the independence and time alone that you want. One of your biggest fears is the dependence and neediness of others. Because you struggle in this way, others can often feel ignored, ignored or unappreciated. How about this? As a Christian, you may struggle with self-righteousness. One of the telltale emotions and actions is that you're aggressive, you're argumentative. Argumentative. You want to be right in the eyes of others. Sacrificing relationships that challenge or confront is an acceptable cost to you in order to be right in the eyes of others. One of your biggest fears is being wrong, guilty, or condemned. Because you struggle in this way, others can feel challenged, condemned, or dismissed. Here's another. As a Christian, you may struggle with self-satisfaction. One of the telltale emotions and actions is that you're controlling, you're demanding, and you're dissatisfied. You want pleasure, which you define on your own, whatever that means. Sacrificing community, if inconvenient, is an acceptable cost to you in order to get pleasure. One of your biggest fears is others interfering with your personal pleasure. Because you struggle in this way, others can feel like objects, not companions. One more. As a Christian, you may struggle with how self-taught you are. One of the telltale emotions or actions is that you're opinionated and domineering. You want a platform for your own opinion. Sacrificing growing together with others if you disagree is an acceptable cost to you in order to gain a platform for your own opinion. One of your biggest fears is being told what to think, say, and do. Because you struggle in this way, others can feel patronized or disrespected. The struggle's there, friends. And it happens for you if you're a Christian. Now, I've asked friends to pray as I preached to you today and I brought God's word to you today because I had to bring such bad news. This is bad news. You're worse off, as Jack Miller used to say, than you ever dared believe. But you're also far better off and far more loved than you ever dared hope in the gospel. The word deliver is a dramatic word that's often overlooked in these verses. It should shine out brightly. 
When you need to be delivered, it means that you're hopeless with outside help. Friends, in Jesus, you have outside help that has come to you and made himself available to you and through his spirit empowers you to live in a different way in this host of circumstances that we all face together. John Newton puts it well in another one of his pastoral letters. Listen to what he reads. And be encouraged. This brought my heart to song in prayer this week. I hope it does for you too. But blessed be God, though we must feel hourly cause for shame and humiliation, for what we are in ourselves, we have cause to rejoice continually in Christ Jesus who as he is revealed unto us under the various names, characters, relations, and offices which he bears in the scripture, holds out to our faith a balm for every wound, a cordial for every discouragement, and a sufficient answer to every objection which sin or Satan can suggest against our peace. If we are guilty, he is our righteousness. If we are sick, he is our infallible physician. If we are weak, helpless, defenseless, he is the compassionate and faithful shepherd who has taken charge of us and will not suffer anything to disappoint our hopes or to separate us from his love. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. But he is engaged to guide us by his counsel, support us by his power, and at length to receive us to his glory that we may be with him forever. Jesus said in John 16:33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. He has. Let's come to him now in prayer because he's overcome on our behalf. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you now dependent, turning away from our self-focus, our self-reliance, our self-effort, our self-everything. We cannot come to you that way. We are lost and alone that way. It feels like it when we live out of that kind of rootedness, that kind of wrong-rootedness that we all struggle with. This morning, Father, we ask the prayer that Hosea asked in 10.12. Hosea 10.12 where he says, Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. Break up your unplowed ground for it's time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness upon you. Heavenly Father, if we're sowing righteousness and we think that it's our own and we're reaping the fruit of unfailing love which we cannot do then the righteousness itself that we sow in repentance cannot be our own righteousness. It has to be yours. And you give it freely, and yet with great cost to yourself. Father, help us to know the cost so that we might not be proud, and yet help us to know the freedom of relationship with you so that we might be bold, that we might not be afraid that we might know that you've interceded on our behalf and that you stand strong and that you will complete the work that you've begun. Be with us now as we go into life together in community and that we celebrate around the table together and eat as a community that you are making one by one more and more like you. The pressure is too great for us to carry. 
And so we put the pressure on your promises, your faithfulness, your grace and peace. Thank you for extending peace to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.